This is the fifth week of our summer message series we're calling David for King. The story of David is one of the most important stories in the whole Bible. If you'd like to follow along on your own, you can find the story of David in the first and second books of Samuel, as well as the first book of Chronicles. They're actually good, great books to read because they tell a great story. So that's one of the challenges we're making in the course of this series. Read the story of David. David had such an impact on the history of Israel, nearly every biblical book written after him was written in reference to him. Every prophet preached about him, every king was compared to him, and none came close to his achievements. More than that, to understand David and his story is to understand the heart of the story that's the Old Testament and the work of preparation it represents for the coming of Christ. If we don't know who David is, then we won't understand the throne that King Jesus sits on. That's why we're devoting a whole series just to David. We've been covering the life of David for several weeks now, so if you're traveling in the course of this series, as many people are, or if you have missed the first four weeks of this series, you can always catch up by going to our website, stmary.life, to listen to or read the previous weeks. In this week's gospel, Jesus responds to his disciples' request for instructions on prayer. Lord, teach us how to pray. Having taught his disciples to whom they should pray, which is God the Father, and what to pray for, that's God's kingdom, daily bread, mercy, and strength in adversity, Jesus then rounds out his lesson with advice on how to pray, namely with persistence. As we read Jesus' brief parable, we should avoid comparing God to the reluctant friend whom we need to hassle to get what we need. Rather, the point is this, God is much more willing to respond to our prayer than we are to pray. It took humility on the disciples' part to admit that they needed help learning how to pray. But when Jesus did teach them, he told them, how, he told them to do it and to do it often told them to trust God and to hold nothing back from the Father. The gospel today, this week fits nicely with our series on David, who is a complex, fascinating leader. David remains one of the most transparent, commanding figures in the Bible. In both his gifts and his flaws, we see a man of God who grows into a great leader. And from him, we can learn a lot about leadership, as God would have us lead. In last week's message, we took a look at David as a young rising star in the kingdom of Israel, while the reigning king, Saul, descended deeper and deeper into poor decisions, bad choices, and widening on unpopularity. Saul came to resent David so much so that he eventually set out to kill him. And while David kept himself out of harm's way, he refused to fight Saul because he considered him the legitimate king. He knew that one day, sooner or later, he himself would be king. And he just waited on God and God's timing to make that happen. Have you ever prayed and had to wait? It's tough sometimes. In the story of David, we're shown the goodness of David's heart. Eventually, the day does arrive when David's time comes. At this point in the story, which can be found in 2 Samuel, the Bible says that in the heat of an ill-advised battle, King Saul is fatally wounded. 
after his death, there's a power vacuum. Half the country rallies around Saul's son, and the other half around David. But David grows stronger and stronger in the process. We read this over and over again in David's story. David stopped, he paused, he inquired of the Lord, he took time to pray, and he continued to pray. We read in David's story, David became more powerful because God was with him. It's a pattern, and it's as simple as it can be. Before David did anything, he stopped, he paused, he prayed, he asked God, what do you want me to do, Lord? And he waited for the answer. And you know what? That's a prayer that God always answers. Next, David makes two interesting executive decisions. First, he decides to relocate the capital of Israel from where it had been, a place called Hebron, to the city of Jerusalem. This was not done randomly, as this helped unite the northern and southern tribes of Israel, which had been at war with one another since Saul's death, because Jerusalem sat on the border between the north and the south. Jerusalem would have been considered a neutral city among all of the 12 tribes, and by moving the capital there, David demonstrates his desire to be an impartial ruler of all the people. David's second major decision is to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the new capital. What's the Ark of the Covenant, you might ask? Well, you know, it's what Harrison Ford was running around trying to find in that movie. Actually, the Bible tells us that it was a chest Moses ordered to be built during the exodus of Israel from Egypt. And the chest contained the tablets of the Ten Commandments that Moses received from God on Mount Sinai, as well as some of the preserved manna and bread that was miraculously given in the desert to the people of Israel. The ark was considered the holiest object in the kingdom, the holy of holies, the presence of God himself among them. Exactly and precisely like the tabernacle in our own church and in all Catholic churches throughout the world. David wanted to bring the ark to Jerusalem to underscore that God is present with his people, that God makes his home with his people, and that he is really the head and the leader of the nation. God is the king of the people. And so David hosts a celebration for the ark's arrival. We read, David and all the house of Israel danced before the Lord with all their might. It's a strange thing, don't you think? A warrior and a king to dance in the streets and public before the ark? It's so odd that David's wife, Michael, sees it and she's angry and embarrassed. We read, Michael, daughter of King Saul, looked down from her window and when she saw King David jumping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him with all her heart. So my wife is mortified by her husband's actions. That never happens today, does it, in marriage? When David gets home, of course, he catches it from Michael, who scolds him with deep sarcasm. How well the king of Israel has honored himself today, exposing himself to the view of his followers as a commoner might expose himself. David fires right back. I was dancing before the Lord who chose me over your father. Whoa, now, David, calm down. When he appointed me ruler over Israel, he continues, I made merry before the Lord and I'll do it again. Well, beyond a fairly typical marital spat, what does this mean and why is it even in the Bible? 
It seems so odd. It's actually hugely important to the story. Consider the situation. David has just become king, and he had to fight his way to get there. And now, he's the most powerful person in the land and one of the most powerful figures on earth. The pressure to look and behave nobly and regally must have been great. Expectations were high. All eyes were on him. And what does he do? He dances in the street like a child of uninhibited joy. He's completely vulnerable before all the people. And nobody had ever seen a king act like that. David's vulnerability showed his trust in God. God raised up exactly the leader he wanted, a leader after his own heart, who isn't afraid to be vulnerable for the sake of serving and worshiping him. So God makes this promise to David. I was with you, David, wherever you went. I cut down all your enemies before you, and I'll make your name like that of the greatest on earth, your kingdom will last forever. God reminds David here of his faithfulness in the past. It was God who freed Israel from slavery in Egypt. It was God who led them through the desert. It was God who defeated the giant Goliath. It was God who formed the Israelites into a nation. And so it is God who will build David a kingdom. The success of David's kingdom will not be determined by David's power nor by his ingenuity, or wisdom, or excellence, or even David's good looks. The, king, the kingdom will be built on David's trust and the power of God. A great leader in God's eyes is someone, anyone, who trusts him greatly. And God promises David a throne that will last forever. He promises the Davidic kingdom will last forever. But we know that historically, David's kingdom came to a very definite end around the year 585 B.C. It didn't last forever. Or did it? So what happened to that promise, to that pledge? What happened to that forever stuff that God was talking about? Well, a thousand years after David, a son is born to the house of David in the city of David. And he's called the son of David, the Christ Jesus, which means the anointed one. Jesus is the anointed successor of King David. And Jesus' kingdom is the church. And that kingdom will last forever. David balanced great strength with great worship. Worship and prayer require vulnerability, humility, effort. Men and women, after God's own heart, worship God wholeheartedly. They don't hold back. They're not embarrassed. They're not even afraid to sing at Mass. Lastly, there's no leadership in God's kingdom without trust. God wants your trust. God seeks your trust. It's a prerequisite for Him working and operating in your life. God wants you to trust Him with good things and great things, like your marriage, your kids, your career, your school, your studies, your time and talent, and treasure. God wants you to trust him with important things like that so that you can be the leader he wants you to be. Today is the first week of our new homily series, 
Entering the Mission Field. Over the next couple of weeks, we plan to explore the idea that as Christians, Jesus asks us to go out and share Jesus with the world. As we begin this series, I'd like to remind you that if you're traveling in the course of this series, or if you would like to share this with a friend, you can always go to our website, saintmary.life, to listen, read, or share the message. The setting for our gospel this weekend is a Sabbath dinner at the home of a leading Pharisee. Pharisees were one of the groups in Jesus' day who lived a very strict observance of the laws of the Old Testament and did so in such a way that made people feel like the Pharisees were holier than everybody else. Sabbath meals are occasions to invite guests, and on this occasion, Jesus had been invited and was present. Jesus uses occasions like this one to challenge those who feel comfortable about themselves, especially those who think they're holier than others. As Jesus notices guests striving for places of honor, he tells them in the kingdom he is initiating, status is granted, not sought after. To his host, Jesus says, when drawing up a guest list, don't invite only people who are well-placed or people with good contacts. Rather, invite those who are unimportant in the eyes of society, people who cannot repay you in any way. I'm sure the host thought, why not I even invite this guy? I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind enough to invite him. And then he comes here and he challenges us. Several years ago, I found myself being challenged by Jesus. Father Doug asked me to share with you all sort of my story and what God's plan has been for my life until this point. I was born in Dothan, Alabama and raised in Hartford, Alabama by two wonderful Christians. Hartford is a small town that has more head of cattle than people. My parents were United Methodists and raised me to love Jesus. I often said that I do not remember a time when I didn't know who Jesus is. I've seen Jesus loves me, this I know, my whole life. Thankfully, my knowledge and relationship with him has grown over the years, but I've always known and loved him. I attended Huntington College in Montgomery, Alabama, with the intent of becoming a United Methodist minister. During the summer between my junior and senior years, I began to read and study more deeply. In my senior year, I began to take church history classes and realized that there was more to Christianity than I had experienced to that point in my life. The summer after I graduated, I began to read about the Catholic faith. I was reluctant to consider what I was reading, but I was also impressed. It began a seven-year-long journey as I wrestled with lots of ideas and spent lots of time reading, arguing, and praying. But I was not convinced. I rationalized that a middle ground between my upbringing and becoming a Catholic would be the Episcopal or Anglican Church. Now, sometimes when you hear someone say they are Episcopal or Anglican, it may cause confusion. But an easy way to understand it is Episcopalians or Anglicans who live in the United States. It's basically the same body of believers. It was in ordained ministry as I functioned as an Episcopal priest that I realized the fullness of the Catholic faith and had the desire to join. With lots of prayer and study, I went from where I was to finally coming into full communion with the church. It wasn't easy, but it was so worth it. Things did not get easier when I finally came to this decision because now I had to tell Amanda, my wife. I was very nervous to tell her because she wasn't raised in the Catholic church either. 
She did join me in the Episcopal Church after we began to date, but that was a pretty big jump for her as it had been for me. I don't think she ever really thought I'd have the desire to become Catholic. After much prayer and study for her as well, she and I, with Micah, who was our one-year-old child, came into full communion in March of 2001. We were so excited and thrilled. However, we lost several friends who stopped talking to us after we became Catholic, with family members who stopped talking to us. I had to find employment after leaving my job as a priest. I believe that I had received a call into ministerial life when I was 16. I trained for eight years to be a minister. When we converted, I was a bit lost because I was no longer what I felt called to and had desired to be, which was a priest. Our journey came at a great cost, but it has been so worth it. In May of 2011, I sent my request to enter the process to be ordained a Catholic priest with permission to be relieved from the obligation of being celibate, which simply means that I can be married and have children and still be a priest. It took almost eight years, but in December of 2018, Pope Francis granted my request and granted me permission to be ordained a priest in the Catholic Church. So how is any of this even possible? Well, the Church has a process called the Pastoral Provision, which provides a way for married former Episcopal priests in the United States to be ordained as a Roman Catholic priest and serve in a parish church in the United States while being released from the obligation of celibacy. The idea of priestly celibacy finds its roots in the tradition of the Catholic Church. However, there have been married Catholic priests from the beginning of the Catholic priesthood until today. Celibacy became a discipline for Catholic priests in the West in the year 1123 AD. The Eastern Catholic churches, however, have allowed priests to be married until this present day. In 1980, the Catholic, priest in the, the Catholic Church in the West, that's all of us, began allowing married Episcopal priests to be ordained as Catholic priests in the United States. This process, called the Pastoral Provision, was established by Pope St. John Paul II. Currently, there are around 20 or so married Catholic priests all over the United States, all of whom are converts to the Catholic Church. Each man who wishes to be ordained with this provision must seek the approval of the current Pope, which, for me, was Pope Francis. For education, each Episcopal priest must have a master's degree in theology before beginning the process. After he is received into the process to become a priest, each man goes through a Catholic seminary process. Once ordained, I'll be a real priest and be able to serve just as any priest does. I'll be able to administer any sacrament a Catholic priest is allowed to administer. Now, just to help put anyone's mind at ease who may be concerned by this, first, the Catholic Church has not changed on the idea of celibacy. Second, Men like me are not asking for the church to change or to begin to ordain married men outside of the exception made for us as Episcopal priests. And third, I've offered myself to the church because I know there is a need. We have a shortage of priests, and the next few years are critical for us to get through, and guys like me offer ourselves to help out. The gospel reading for today 
reinforces my desire to serve the church in this way. As we look at the gospel for today, Jesus tells those at the feast to invite all, not just important people or people that we may like. They are to call all people to come and eat at the Lord's table and to become Jesus' disciples. This passage should really speak to us today here at St. Mary's as we continue to become a place where we invite all to come. It is easy for us to be happy and content here together, but Jesus calls us to something more. You see, the church exists for the benefit of those who are not its members as well. Jesus tells us in the gospel today that the mission of the church is to share Jesus with all people, to help all people come into relationship with him and become his disciples. I believe this is what has called me to to be a deacon and a future priest. I believe this is why he called me to St. Mary's, and I believe he is calling you as well to go and make disciples. Let's make St. Mary's a place where it becomes impossible not to share Jesus with the world.